Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. I'm Duffy Dixon. Joining me is Jennifer Strahan. She's the Chief Operating Officer of Soar Vision Group. Jennifer has partnered with more than 100 health systems and businesses across the U.S. She helps them transform their strategic and administrative operations. Next to her is Lisa Council, who is the Chief Commercial Officer for SOAR. She comes there after more than two decades of clinical leadership and clinical informatics experience. She spent 19 years at the McKesson Corporation, She leads lar- where she was leading large teams in clinical consulting, EHR optimization, ROI teams, direct sales, and sales support. And most importantly, our guest this week is Nikki Buchanan. She is the General Manager of Population Insights and Care at Phillips. Welcome, Nikki. We're happy to have you. Hello. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. We are, we are excited you are here. And our first question is the easiest one. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Sure. So again, Nikki Buchanan, I uh, manage the Population Insights and Care Group at Phillips. Uh, we are an interesting uh, software organization focused on healthcare and bringing the ecosystem, disparate systems within healthcare together. Uh, so within my division of Philips, because we are quite a large global company, um, I manage the population health management side, the telehealth and telemonitoring side, as well as the patient engagement side. And our goal, of course, as a business is to bring all of those wonderful parts of the healthcare ecosystem together and make a better experience for clinicians, physicians, and of course, patients. So what is the partnership? What is the dynamic between you and SOAR Vision Group? Uh, Great friends, great history with uh, some of the leadership here, especially Lisa. We've known each other for years and uh, really interested in being able to share my experiences with Philips uh, and healthcare and seeing how the opportunity with SOAR uh, can bring those kind of benefits together. So one question that might be helpful for the audience is just to express a little bit around what is population health? Sure, sure, that's the, the it's always number one, right? What does that mean? Because it means different in every business. Um, population health and the view of population health and managing patients has evolved, especially over the past 10 years, because of value-based care. Value-based care is a new industry thing uh, within healthcare, and it's really driving towards having improved patient outcomes, reducing the cost of healthcare and looking at more ways to prevent and provide wellness type support for patients so they're actually not in the hospital. We're looking at ways of managing their care in their normal setting, the home, in their daily life, looking for ways to bring them in earlier for physicals, improve their health and prevent negative outcomes over time. Because we all know there's a chronic disease crisis within Mm -hmm. the U.S. healthcare system and we're all looking for ways to reduce that over time. So, Nikki, you were, again, I go way back with you yes. on McKesson Days, and then yes. you worked for Wellcentive. Correct. Tell yep. us a little bit about that journey yeah. where Phillips acquired Wellcentive yeah. and how that transition has been from kind of exclusive pop health yes. um, focus to, to a little bit more of a consumer, a broader consumer perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Wellcentive was kind of first in class um, in the population health kind of market um, for almost seven years. Um, and we had the opportunity to, 
interact and create great partnerships with organizations like Phillips. Um, Phillips sought us specifically because of the fact that we had such a large customer base that was benefiting, you know, truly benefiting from the value-based care contracts that they had entered into with the insurance companies in the U.S. So we were helping them monitor their quality, improve their quality, and ultimately achieve the outcomes they were looking for for their patients, which was actually financially rewarding to them as well. So about 2015-16, um, we were available you know, on, and on the market, and Phillips came, and our leadership got together and met the Phillips leadership team, and we realized you know, truly the Dutch mentality of caring for all mm. and finding the best way and at the best price with the best outcomes was really a match to our vision to the market. And so, you know, really when, when companies mix and companies get acquired, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a questionable time, right? Sure. Um, as you go through that transition. But what I loved about our leadership team and what I loved about the Phillips leadership team was we were all in it for the same reasons. And so when you find that blend of culture and that opportunity for cultures to come together and benefit globally, that's where we saw the chance as well, Senev, to take all the good work we had done in the U.S. and North America and actually have the opportunity to transfer it into a global setting. And I will attribute Nikki for her large customer base. She actually was the VP of customer service at the time. So grew that customer base, yep. kept them very happy. So again, that was part of their uh, desire when Phillips actually acquired them. Absolutely. I'm curious as you made your transition from kind of that, <laughs> that domain around customer success yes. into a general manager of yeah. three different segments inside of Phillips. Are you, yeah. do you find you're doing a lot of the same work? You're combining <laughs> the activities? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually probably 25% of my role, and this is, you know, a lot by my choice, is still touch, direct touch and engagement with the customer. Um, I really feel like that's something that I'm just, uh, you know, a subject matter expert in, and I can always add value there. To your question, 75% of my time then is dedicated to the rest of managing the business, whether it be the sales, uh, whether it be the marketing opportunities, or even just the general operational and process points. Um, a lot, there's a lot of challenges, of course, in any business when you bring three parts of a business together. Mm -hmm. um, and mainly for us, we focused the first six to 12 months, and this is where I spent a lot of my time, was creating the new vision, uh, the new definition of pop health within Phillips. Um, and that really meant for us, it was going to be meeting patients where they were in their most natural setting, which as most of us know, that's home. So we looked at all the home assets we had, the telemonitoring business that we had, the telehealth business, the remote patient monitoring, the ability to survey patients on an iPad at home about how they're feeling today, to take their blood pressure, to get them on a scale and monitor their daily habits and daily routine. We figured, well, that is really meeting the patient where they are and getting those clinical inputs on a timely basis to our clinicians and to our customers so that they could take proactive care of these really at times fragile patients. So I spent a lot of time on that marketing message, on creating that story that we could take to hymns and other events throughout the year, such that people would see we weren't just a healthcare organization focused on in-hospital and all of the good that comes from that with Philips and lighting and its mm -hmm. history. We had the opportunity to actually extend our services into the ambulatory and home environments. And this is something where healthcare is healthcare increasingly going to go to this this telecare and and I guess my question is, will customers go for this and why, or why not? 
Yes. Yeah, so Lisa asked earlier, you know, how did how did things change as we started to become more consumer focused? Uh, consumerism is driving the changes in healthcare today. Healthcare, in my opinion, has taken way too long to catch up to where patients are and where patients expect service. Wow, that sounds like what you always say, Jennifer. <laughs> she's, she's saying your, word, your words are coming out of her mouth. I gave her a tip before. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's such an exciting time, I think, because maybe 10 years ago, the Amazons and the CVS changes of the world couldn't have been embraced, but there's absolute, absolutely a perception with consumers today that I should be able to get, let, let, let's take a typical situation. I should be able to get drugs delivered to my door mm -hmm. and I mean pharmaceutical drugs recommended <laughs> drugs to my door you know at, at on a whim anytime because that's where everything else in our world is going I can get anything off of Amazon why can't my why can't my physician who knows my personal history knows my longitudinal record right has that data in front of them why can't they prescribe something to me if I'm just having a quick FaceTime call and tell they know my entire history mm -hmm. they know my physical status why can't we just make the whole consumer-driven parts of the business that much easier and tangible? Whether it be you stop in at a minute clinic and just get validated by a nurse, or you get your flu shot and your whole family comes with you to get it done. I mean, there's so many opportunities and ways that we can bring the consumer side of health together, and it benefits the patient, it benefits the clinician, and it benefits healthcare overall because we're not waiting for people to show up in the ER. And people aren't waiting for hours in doctor's offices or ERs. That's right. right. So one of the things that I love that you mentioned, Nikki, is around, it's around, it's about putting care in the most natural setting. Yes. So when you think about one topic that I would love to explore a little bit, because we haven't talked about it on the show before, mm -hmm. is relative to kind of the American yes. expectations yes. and the some of the European and yep. Scandinavian and Dutch Yes. expectations yes. which are very different very. but yet at the same time both bring uh, exceptional value in different perspectives right. so what I love is that as a company you guys can marry those things of what works because the reality is we often think well we don't want to go to one extreme or the other and it probably is somewhere in the middle that mm -hmm. we need to meet sure. so I love that you guys mm -hmm. can actually explore that yeah. can you talk a little bit yeah. about maybe some of the yeah. cultural pieces that have blended and yeah this I mean this is probably one of the most exciting parts of my job to be honest um, to be able to be exposed to different cultures and the way they are treating and caring for patients and to see how other cultures aren't necessarily as worried about liability they're not as worried about privacy and confidentiality. Why? Because they've already dealt with those over the past several years, and they've gotten the patient buy-in. They've gotten the patient agreement that, yes, you can use my data to take proactive stance. That's still a huge barrier in the U.S. healthcare system. Sure. So to see other countries embrace it and say, no, I'm going to tell you, patient, how I'm going to use your data, and it's going to benefit you because I'm going to be more aware of your timely situation than I would be if I waited for you to show up in the hospital. So that's been refreshing, that's been exciting. Um, I've also seen different uses of our technology in different ways in different markets. So our biggest first customer with telehealth almost seven years ago was Australia. Hmm. Australia and New Zealand adopted the practice of monitoring patients in the home as long as you met certain risk factors. And the way they presented it to the patient was, there is a score, there's an algorithm that is generated based on your behavior, based on what I see in your lab reports every year, and based on the chronic condition that you have. I can treat you 
monitor you at home and make you feel safe. I mean, think about it. There's people out in the bush in Australia. It takes two right. and a half hours to get to a hospital. Right. They need Access some maintenance. That's right. Mm-hmm. They need some maintenance and follow up at home. It's convenient for them. It's more likely that they will actually follow a regimen if they're monitoring and daily logging their systems or their sure. You know, their different circumstances in their life. So it was so cool to see that folks in Australia and New Zealand got through the interoperability barriers they got through the privacy barriers and they said we're going to truly activate this we're not looking for financial savings we're looking for patient improvement patient satisfaction and patient outcomes we want affinity of those patients to our health system even if they're three and a half hours away so it depends on what model you want to talk about or how you want to deploy it that's why we try to stay as neutral as we can in the technology and in, in, in removing the access or the barriers to the technology such that any model can fit and support the system. So we deploy change management services when needed. We look at the healthcare system to say, hey, how are you gonna do this? And do you realize there's a cost investment here? But do you also realize if you're in a value-based care payment model, you may actually receive reimbursement. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if y'all have been following the legislation, but this year has been landmark for telehealth. Landmark, CMS patients can now be reimbursed for not patients themselves, right? But the health, the the CMS uh, uh, provider, the right? The deliveries provider. can be reimbursed for a forty-minute up to a forty-minute visit a mo- every month over the transaction or time of a year, which is huge. It that, is huge. That's been one of the and biggest barriers. Duffy, to your for you, there there are physicians who still are not taking advantage. Providers who have not leveraged the CMS law. I went into my doctor just recently and I was like, okay, are you doing telehealth? Can I FaceTime? No. And I said, why not? It's legally approved. You can get paid for it. So even in the Atlanta market, they're still laggards trying to catch up to the law. So I go into my doctor and this is good for people who are listening. And Mm -hmm. I say, are you complying is it a, well if it's a law or is no it eligible is you, it, are you yeah, okay yeah, yeah. and do you have the ability to do cms just telehealth can telehealth. you do can you do remote visits can you do a you know a facetime visit now again there's certain rules right. that fall into that facetime <laughs> visit right yeah. so, but but was the and so the holdout was wait a minute we're not getting paid for our time right right they, that's exactly <laughs> right there you right. Go. so there what's you go. interesting is you talked about australian in the bush and we yes. kind of think like oh that's you know there are images that come to mind from yes. movies and everything yes. else, but the reality is the majority of Americans are actually rural Americans. Like yes. it's not everybody just as easy to come. So it's not unusual no. to see that. And then yeah. also shameless plug, because obviously we have our event coming up in November with UAB and the Baldridge Foundation for rural health. And so it's an element where you, the benefit of that, especially with getting paid, is it adds to the viability of those organizations to remain independent, successful organizations and treat their patient populations. You've you've hit on so many of the reasons why we're doing what we do. We really see the value, and, and that's actually in our roots, even as WellCentive. We see the value of having that independent physician market available in any setting, rural, or even you know the urban settings because if you have independent providers you will always have objectivity in their diagnosis in the way they treat you can always get other opinions right from a large health system if you like but we know when with these independent providers they've known a lot of these patients for a very very long time they've seen their entire family history yes. right their children their grandparents etc <clears throat> there's just huge opportunity to keep that affinity with their patients and where patients feel the most secure before having to result in care that may be specialized in a in a larger healthcare system right not to mention the fact you know there's such a, a high percentage of non-compliance 
compliance. So patients, again, who are not complying with either their medication re regimen. So to Nikki's point, if meds come to their door, just like an Amazon package, then we've removed a barrier that you didn't have to go to the local Eckerd or CVS or whatever. Um, Noncompliance, especially in the older population, yes. is really a barrier to their health. So yes. um, kudos to Phillips it's, to really taking down those barriers. It's really been fun. I mean, just the opportunity to know in a day whether or not they're taking their meds because it affects their blood pressure, it affects For their sure. weight, it affects their diet, it affects the way they feel. Yeah. To be able to have intervention happen in 24 hours is, is a change in our healthcare system. It's a change in the way we're doing business with our patients. And we have just seen so many positive outcomes because of You're that. You're saving lives and saving money because if that patient, congestive heart failure, they start generating too much fluid in their body, they mm -hmm. end up in the ER, there's greater expense, they could die. Again, yes. there's so many components that you're that touching were preventable that's right. exactly the other right. thing that i like about this is the perspective of from a, a facility those small critical access hospitals or again some of those other areas it gives them unique opportunities to partner with some of those rural or more urban hospitals yes. that honestly don't necessarily need to treat the more acute and that's severe exactly right. things that those individuals could stay home in their own community mm -hmm. with things like telehealth. Yeah. So um, a colleague of mine who I've known for a few years is a CEO of a small critical access hospital, okay. and they have a very unique partnership with a uh, very well-known, a very successful organization um, at one of the other national known hospitals, sure. where what this allows them to do is that what would be considered sort of an ICU for the critical access hospital, which is pretty minor for the large urban hospital, they keep those patients home yes. and they have telehealth with those um, specialists yes. in the other larger hospitals. Yep. So there's also values, not obviously there's a direct value to the patients, yep. but also to, to providers and organizations yes. that can allow those organizations to stay again independent. Is it also a selling point to consumers that, you know, during flu season, I mean, it's a petri dish. Well, it's a petri dish everywhere to, you go. Who wants to go exactly. to the doctor's office? Right. Nobody. Right. There was, Everyone needs a bubble at that point. Right. 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 There's recently on Family Feud, there was a, what are the number one places in a doctor's office where people leave germs? It was the most disgusting question. Yeah. Waiting Magazine, room. Oh, yeah, the sure. waiting room, yeah. the doorknob, yeah. the when remote I, control, yeah. like when, there's a television. Yeah. I mean, crazy. that's got to help. Yeah. That's got to keep Definitely. people healthier that's too, exactly especially right. your critical populations, your elderly, your small children. I mean, oh, get yeah. him, stay away from the germ <laughs> yeah. zone, man. Well, I yeah. take my son, so my son's three and a half, right? And I'll take him in, and the pedi pediatrician, they have a, a sick side yes. and a well side. Yes. And, you yeah. know, you appreciate when you're well, but when you're sick, <laughs> like, I walk in, and I'll literally hold him in the middle of the room, and I'm like, don't touch any chairs. <laughs> yeah. Don't and, sit. Like, and, just and they'll don't have, like, a little anything. game on the table in the sick area. Yes, like, you can't like, touch no. that. It's like, why can't I touch? Yeah. Well, and they've gone to, you know, at it, it, my doctor's office, there are masks, and they say, yeah. if you are wow. sick, put yeah. that oh. mask on. Which Mine is huge, and yes. I thought that's genius. But again, yes. it it's got to be a selling point that yep. it keeps people because a lot of people right. don't go to the doctor right. because of things right. like that. For yeah. sure, absolutely, for sure. Well, random, you, sorry, random note. But speaking yeah. of masks, I was walking because you know we spend a lot of times not only in hospitals in but in airports. Oh, and yeah. I was walking through the airport and I saw someone with a mask on, and I was thinking like, oh, you know, I hate that, but I am so glad you're Thank wearing you. a yes. mask. Thank, Thank you. Yes. That was my response, and I'm yep. thinking we need to do that more because it's not flu season, right. but it's such an important endeavor. But it even goes back to the culture of what we talk about from, again, more of that, that Dutch culture. Yes. There is a responsibility 
Yes. To think broader than us, yes. right, ourselves, but think about society. Yeah, and you know that you know some there's varying opinions on why that is so ingrained. You know, in certain countries, the government is responsible for healthcare, mm-hmm. right? Overall, completely 100. percent So maybe that's part of the culture that they've grown up in. So they they've always looked for alternatives. But I also think an interesting thing that I see in other countries as well, and you guys both hit on it, there is a community aspect to health mm-hmm. and healthcare. And the more and more we can get health systems, health providers working and interacting with the community health networks, right? The social services, the drivers, the Uber drivers, right? For I sure. mean, Uber and Lyft <laughs> showed up at Hims this year with huge booths, right? They are a part of healthcare now. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you start to think of the whole social determinants, what's going on in a community, how can a community jump in and be a part of the system? You know, even just driving somebody to their doctor's appointment because it's the same person that takes them right. to their church event on Sundays. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to tap into these networks, right? Because if you can do that, you again bring healthcare closer to home. And home may not be the home or the apartment someone lives in. It may be in their community environment, mm-hmm. their their church or their you know the place that they do their social activities walking in the park i mean imagine if there was a you know you know the mammogram on wheels mm-hmm. type situation sure. imagine if there were flu shots available in your local park right, or sure. at the local Publix down the street i mean it just it makes us question our current setup in every way when you start to think about how am i going to reach people right. how am i going to prevent these things how am i going to improve wellness over time and how am i going to sustain people in the most natural setting so Huge opportunity. And you have actually been able to take this message globally. Yes. You were a presenter at the World Health Organization, yes. which is oh, a very big wow. deal for yeah. our audience. Yeah. Um, so tell us yep. a little bit about, again, how you um, yeah. how well, you came to that and what the outcome was. So, First of know, all, were you nervous? Oh, I was terrified. That's a big, that's a big <laughs> deal. I was terrified, but I was equally excited. So, yeah. you know, the WHO is like the mecca of healthcare and mm-hmm. public health, right? So that's a lot of my background. Um, so I was just so excited at the opportunity to be able to do it. But the, the thing that was the most rewarding was that global, globally, healthcare is, is just, it's a priority for all of mm-hmm. us. And so when you, when you get with many nations, we had 12 different nations involved in the study that we were doing and providing kind of best practices across how do you get vaccines to patients in their, again, most common setting. It, when everyone is involved in coming from that point of thinking, you can remove so many barriers. And so that was the most exciting and rewarding thing for me was to deliver a truly, truly um, ROI-driven, let's write requirements together and agree upon those for 12 different countries. Let's figure out what we all have in common, and then let's create a system, a technology to support the things that we all have in common. Because that, again, is one of the biggest barriers in U.S. healthcare. There are very few standards but yet we're heavily regulated by the FDA with what we can do. We're heavily monitored. So that, so we've almost taken the extreme effect of, you know, preventing suing and, and you know, financial disaster, mm-hmm. right? right, litigation. And instead, if you look at it more from a what's a standard that we all have in common and write requirements such that all these things can be re-delivered and repurposed in multiple places, that's when you start to hit to ROI. And that's where you start to work with technology companies like us and others out there who say, I can create one product, which reduces cost by creating one product, and I can deliver it in multiple ways, right, or in multiple locations. It's when you have to nuance and change the standard for every country, that's when product prices right. start to soar sure. mm-hmm. because you're meeting regulatory demands in each of the countries. So, the, you know, we look globally at Philips, we look for ICHOM standards, like right? we look for things that are 
globally driven requirements that have been agreed upon at a standards level. And when we can find those and then we can take them to a health system and say, we followed the rules from this group. Do you agree that those rules are the most important? It's like ICD-10, right, in, right. in the US. Mm -hmm. If you can share with them, we've looked at best practices and these are validated, that changes the game in the conversation. Because now they suddenly say, okay, you know, I was thinking about doing a telehealth pilot but you're following a standard from another country and that standard tells me you've already piloted this. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll do a pilot, but maybe we'll just do a shorter one. Or maybe we'll go ahead and reach out to more people that we weren't originally going to do because we know it's based on standards or evidence-based guidelines. And pilots usually consist of lower dollars. They don't wanna pay as much for, for a test, a trial. Yes. We providers, tip, you know, from a technology, we don't like those necessarily. <laughs> so again, if there's already been some proof yes. uh, in your business practices, yep. then it, again, makes for an easier contracting, for a longer term of engagement, lots of really good things. And it accelerates the ROI. For sure. Right? So, yeah. you know, we, we've got some wonderful customers that are all about doing the pilot thing. But, but what I love about these pilots is they've also said, you prove to us either financial or clinical outcomes within 90 to 120 days, or even just reductions in things, right? Costs, behaviors, visits, whatever it may be. If you can prove those in 90 to 120 days, we will keep on going. So it's like opening the floodgates. And that, we need to be more bold in doing mm -hmm. that in healthcare That's because you hate to think of an end to a pilot and then waiting again to start it up. Let's just agree that if we're successful and we prove our side of it, and so that we have to get into risk contracts mm -hmm. a lot of times with mm -hmm. pilot type customers, if we prove it, you'll let us just keep going. Because you've done so much to get the clinical mm -hmm. workflow change and where it is, let's keep moving if everyone in some way benefits from this. Perfect. So Nikki, based on your experience, you've been working with a lot of these organizations. You've seen a lot of people probably approaching things in different ways yes. because of, as yes. you mentioned, the lack of a standard that is not necessarily known. What are some of the things that you have seen that have been very successful for either organizations that when they've brought population health to their community, yeah. right, and their yeah. business model, what are some of those wins yeah. that you could share? And actually Lisa touched on one of them. I don't know if she, she had been researching us to know, but um, we ask anyone who's reluctant or scared to start to focus on a single chronic disease or a single condition that we know cannot be treated on a daily basis in a hospital, but can be treated over time. So CHF patients, chronic heart failure, COPD patients, uh, diabetics, right? There's varying levels and stages of diabetes. These are all simple protocol-driven, evidence-based guideline-driven care guidelines. Mm -hmm. Let's follow those and let's think of them outside of the hospital setting. And if you just start with one of those, you easily adapt over time to multiple conditions. Um, we also have customers who have said, you know what, we just want to get our wait times down in the ER. You hit on that earlier. Well, okay, what if we set up a remote patient monitoring type opportunity for patients who are waiting to come to the hospital or are waiting or wanting to go through the ED? What if we had a way to talk to them and triage them before they ever left their house? Right, there's just many different ways we can frame it, either starting in the home or going to the home post hospital visit. But again, start small. Start with a measurement of patients that you want to see some outcomes with, maybe tie it to a value-based care reimbursement program, and then monitor it in 30, 60, 90-day increments. That's usually the health plan guideline anyways when you discharge a patient. Right. 30, 45, 60, and 90-day mm -hmm. readmits, right? Mm -hmm. So follow the protocols of the health system. Start it small and then grow it over time. 
So tell me what this means for the for the customer. If I'm at home and I am a, I've just been diagnosed with diabetes. Obviously, you want to know my levels of things, right? Yes. Blood levels, everything yes. else. What would be my part in this? Yes. So so obviously I can FaceTime you yep. and you can t- say, you know, yep. tell me what I need to do. Yep. Do I get on my computer and input information? Do you call me? I mean, tell me. Yeah. All of the above okay. or none of the above. Okay. It truly, this is where when, when you're thinking of deploying these types of services, you really have to understand your patient population already. So we have devices, iPads, that can go home with a patient at the time of discharge, and they can simply input the values on the iPad. That's great for my 20-something, right, right. Uh, niece <laughs> or nephew. That's not so great for my 70-year-old grandfather. Right. So if you want to reach all of these different types of people in the population, then you have to almost deploy separate services or look at the services differently. For my 75-year-old grandfather, it may be a touch point every day and a phone call that is three minutes long. Tell me your BP, tell me your weight, and tell me how you're generally feeling today. Or do the smiley face reaction, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Are you feeling great? Is the mood good? Or are you sad or depressed today? Give me those indicators. Or to your earlier question, could it be on a computer? Absolutely, as long as that mechanism is tied to a portal right. within the health system. Okay. So we can deploy any of those variables. It's just a matter of figuring out what's right for the condition or the or the person you're trying to manage. And I'm thinking with every year, this gets a little easier because right. to be honest with you, grandparents FaceTime their grandkids. It's so if so you can do it for them, easier. that's, that's right. right. My mother is the last holdout, but that's because I don't have grandchildren. <laughs> I don't have grandchildren for her. I think she would be totally savvy if she had something that she really wanted to see besides sure. me. Yeah, sure. but it's true. I mean, that that is no longer a foreign concept. That's right. 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 That's right. So imagine 10 years from now, yeah. you know, we'll be laughing about the fact that we thought this was such a big barrier in healthcare, or that we needed to do so many legislative mm-hmm. things to move. We'll be laughing. We'll be saying, why didn't we do this sooner? Well, we're trying to catch up with the technology right. in healthcare. That's always been the problem. But in I healthcare. do think privacy, again, I think it's privacy a, is a big barrier in the U.S. Huge again, transferring electronic data. Mm-hmm. Is that really safe? Yep. Is someone going to gain access? Yep. So uh, it sounds as though other countries may be a little further along than are. we are in the U.S., which I'm you know very disappointed about that yeah to your point there's personal health records in other com- in other countries For today sure. that match and then work into an emr right so right. i know we are coming up on our time which has been great discussion so just a few things that popped into my mind to kind of wrap up and think about the key topics and I would love for us to dive into a little bit more on a few of these one is obviously this is a new way of thinking although it's questionable if it really should be new per se because we've been doing this but it the biggest transition is really with thinking about preventive things that again keep the patients in their natural care setting right in their home because they don't want to come in even though yes you always have a few for the most part they don't want to be there at the hospital, right, or at the, the doctor's office. They want to be home with family in their space. The second thing is really around cultural transformation and the way of thinking from a broad community as well as from an individual provider standpoint across the board. And, of course, the barriers that may help and or hinder that cultural transformation, the structural pieces like the payment models that support the operating system of the actual telehealth structure. But the other thing that really resonated with me was when you were talking about piloting and where to start. It's you think big, but you really start small, right? And so it goes back to the old the old saying of um, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And as, as simple as it is, I feel like my grandparents used to say this all the time, and you kind of laugh, but 
it's so true mm-hmm. in everything we do. But the one thing I would say to just bring this back to the Baldrige hierarchy of needs is if we remember what this is going into is really around that customer value. At the end of the day, when we look at that hierarchy, it's it, are we creating a system that brings value to our customers and that our teams, our employees and colleagues can actually deliver on by setting that up in a way that constantly brings value. And then it, it naturally drives the things we've talked about with ROI and outcomes and other other different settings. We're going to meet again with you next week, and we are going to dive into those very concepts. But for now, we want to thank everyone for joining us on this Leader Dialogue brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Remember, you can listen to a new live show every Friday at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Visit businessradiox.com, click on the Gwinnett Studio, and select our show Leader Dialogue. You can also just go to leaderdialogue.com slash podcast. On behalf of Jennifer, Lisa, and our producers, Trey and Mike, I'm Duffy Dixon. Join us next time on Leader Dialogue here on Business Radio X. 